Welcome to Deeper Levels, a podcast about pathology, medicine, and science mostly. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome a special guest and fellow Rhode Islander, Dr. Kelly Wong. Dr. Wong completed her undergraduate studies in Sioux Falls, South Dakota at Augustana University, after which she completed medical school at the Sanford School of Medicine at the University of South Dakota in Vermilion. She is currently a resident in emergency medicine at the Alberts Medical School of Brown University, which is hosted at multiple institutions, including Rhode Island Hospital, Hasbro Children's Hospital, the Miriam Hospital, and Newport Hospital. Dr. Wong has shown an interest in both teaching and research activities, both of which have won her praise from her colleagues. Dr. Wong, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? Uh, I'm great. I just came back from vacation, so I'm super re-energized and ready to re-enter the world and get back to work. All right. Great. So we're going to get a really upbeat recording from Dr. (laughs) Wong, and she's going to remind us what it feels like to have just rested and relaxed. I love it. I hope so. I love it. And ease you back into work. Okay. So can you tell us about yourself, aside from the biographical info I've given above and how you came to work where you do, parenthetically? Um, I think you are the first person that I've ever spoken to from South Dakota, knowingly. I'm sure I have before. So, yeah. uh, I hear that a lot. Okay. Um, there's not a lot of people who leave South Dakota or, you know, who would be able to leave South Dakota because it's such a small state. Okay. Um, but I am a proud South Dakotan okay. to my core, uh, uh-huh. even though I wasn't born there. Oh, much okay. All my formative years were there. Mm-hmm. But uh, as you mentioned, moving to Rhode Island was kind of the first time that I've left South Dakota. Okay. Um, and when I started residency for emergency medicine, there were no options for me to stay home. Uh, mm-hmm. There's no residencies there. So uh, I figured this was a really cool place to spend four years. And I really fell in love with the people on my interview day. And that's basically how I ended up in Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. Um, I love it. Yeah. And how did you come to choose emergency medicine? What about that called out to you? Um, I was between a couple specialties toward the end mm-hmm. of med school. And I think what I found is during somewhat longer, you know, surgical cases or something like that, I caught myself wondering what was coming into the emergency department. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's really important. I think a lot of people are initially drawn to emergency medicine for kind of the the stuff you see on TV and the, the adrenaline, right? Yeah. yeah. But yeah. I really enjoy people who I can fix and send home, like ah. quick fixes, instant gratification. Okay. Like, okay. I like uh, it. You know, I can provide you pain for your, your dental pain so that yeah, you can yeah, go yeah. Home and see your dentist or I can, you know, reduce those fractures and make it more comfortable for you and you can go right. home. I really yeah. like those too. The, the absence of true longitudinal care, which yeah. as a pathologist, you know, I appreciate. And I also, I also will, although I do longitudinal care in a much different way, but I will say that you talked about your mind wandering during surgery cases. I was the one who would just kind of give the surgeon a puppy dog look and ask if I could go to the frozen room with the specimen. So <laughs> perhaps we both discovered our callings um, in the operating room, yeah. but in different ways. That's- did, they, did they let you go? Oh, yeah, because they thought I was so strange. They were like, I <laughs> guess if sure. if you want. like, <laughs> But like you asked. said, yeah, I was like, I could also get a drink of water, which I think is anathema to you all, but uh, necessary for me. That's why I would never right. make it as a surgeon. I, I like drinking water. Right. So you, grew, you did not grow up in South Dakota, but you went to medical school in uh, South Dakota. And I bet people confuse Sanford 
school of medicine all the time. I bet they think it's Stanford, right? Oh, Does yes. I let them it? think that, though. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm Although, just kidding. Very different places. Yeah, very yeah. different. So actually, I was born in California and then moved to South Dakota when I was 10. So that oh. was a very big culture shock. Uh-huh. Um, I bet. Especially as somebody who is, I'm like half Asian. And uh-huh. so I fit in very well in California and I stood out a lot yeah. in South Dakota. So I bet that gives you a really interesting perspective on patient care, especially yeah. like having been two, two, I mean, such different places. And now it's interesting that you say a lot of people in South Dakota don't leave South Dakota. Having not grown up in Rhode Island and now you've lived here as well, you, maybe you can agree or disagree with me. But when I first moved here and I would, people would say, well, you came from, you know, wherever I had moved from Colorado at that time. And they said, why did you come here? Like, it was yeah. always like, what, what are you doing here? Exactly. Because I think people who are born in Rhode Island like to stay here. It's such a lovely place. But then when people come in from the outside, they just kind of tip their head sideways like 15 degrees and look at you like, huh, okay. Um, so that's interesting that you went from one place like that to another place. And like I'm that. going home too. So I think, oh, you know, I, I'm excited to move home. I really yeah. am homebody. I would love to stay in Rhode Island if we could have convinced our families. Yeah, but... Yeah, I get it. I get it. There's there, although, although there's no ER residencies in South Dakota, I'm sure there are emergency rooms. There are. Dakota. Yeah. So they need you. Yeah. So I've asked you today to join me today to talk about patient voting, which is a nonpartisan website that uh, the listeners can access at patientvoting.com with the goal to increase voting by hospitalized patients when they are unexpectedly hospitalized in the days prior to the election and you are a founding member. I saw this organization on Twitter and I was so impressed and you were filling a gap that I didn't even know or think about that existed. So can you tell me what made you want to start this organization? Are you a political person? Do you come from a political family? Uh, not at all. And I think okay. that's usually the assumption. Yeah. If people assume, you know, I'm somebody who, you know, in college, I spent a summer interning in DC or something like that. Yeah. Um, I knew really nothing about politics and only basically voted in presidential elections prior to this. Really? Okay. Um, okay. And nor did I understand the process. And I've had to learn a lot through uh-huh. um, patient voting. Uh-huh. Um, what made me want to start this is, you know, working in the emergency department, I'm fairly accustomed at this point to telling patients, you know, we think that you should be admitted to the hospital because of, you know, your asthma exacerbation because of pneumonia and mm-hmm. uh was very like very used to hearing people say oh I can't be admitted because I need to go home and take care of my grandmother you know I'm the sole mm-hmm. caretaker I can't be admitted right. to the hospital I need to go home or right. you know I need to feed my cat you know I live alone I gotta feed my cat mm-hmm. um but during the election I started hearing this new reason mm-hmm. and it was you know I can't be admitted to the hospital I need to go vote and I am somebody that like cries in any like patriotic scene in movies. <laughs> so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as much as I didn't want patients to leave, you know, it was, it was admirable. Yeah. Um, but I didn't know four years ago during the 2016 election that this, w- that patients could vote from the hospital. Mm. Um, and so I didn't either. I mean, yeah. It's just never something I, I just don't think people think about it, you know? Right. Um, yeah. And that's what I've found in talking to a lot of people is especially a lot of, you know, other healthcare providers is they mm-hmm. also didn't know and mm-hmm. nobody ever told us and therefore nobody ever tells patients. Um, so initially I started patient voting because, you know, I wanted patients in my own state in Rhode Island 
to know how to vote. And then, you know, because Rhode Island is small and we see a lot of people from Massachusetts and I started exploring Massachusetts process for patients voting in the hospital. And then it just kind of grew from there. Okay. Okay. So not particularly political, but maybe extremely empathetic in terms of listening to your patients. That's a very interesting way to arrive at this political end kind of. So I consider myself a political person. And I will say that my persuasions and ideas run much deeper than I typically post online. My Twitter account, and I think yours too, but you can disagree with me, is somewhat tied to my professional identity. So I feel it would be unprofessional for me to be extremely partisan or negative. Or So I feel like voting is one of those things like child literacy that people just can't argue with. You can't argue with saying people should be able to vote, you know, and access to the ballot is becoming really important right now, especially in the face of COVID-19 and concerns about patient safety. But not all of us look at this situation like you did and and found an organization to help sick people and their family members. And, and so can you tell me about, you said you had to start in Rhode Island, you went to Massachusetts. Can you tell me about the nuts and bolts of how the organization runs in terms of who helps you? I, I was looking at the website. It seems like other healthcare workers and doctors are helping you. Can you run through what it's like? Do you have like a playbook for these people? It it says like, here's, you need to go talk to this person at the hospital. And this is a person in the government you need to go talk to. And exactly. um, Um, Yeah. And then, yeah. A playbook um, is the perfect word for it. Okay. Okay. Um, Because you sound almost like a political organizer in that sense where you sort of, you're like the head of the tree and then you get like people underneath you to do three more people and there's like a certain way you do it. So just can you walk me through that? I, I haven't heard anybody refer to it like that, but it, that is okay. what it feels like generally. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, I founded it and then I have kind of a core group of mostly medical students okay. who are helping so me. You were a medical student at the time that you did this? Four I years was, ago? Actually, I started it in 2018 during the mid Oh, okay. So I okay. was a okay. resident. Okay. But I started noticing, you know, this when you were, lack right. of information as a med mm-hmm. student. Okay. Um, but now, you know, I have some medical students who are helping me, mostly brown medical students because it's here in Rhode Island. Yes. Um, and they are kind of helping with like the overarching uh, things. They have contacted all 50 states board of elections offices. Holy moly. Yeah. And man, you know, the brown medical students, they are on the ball. I know. I'm not surprised. I don't think I took my nose out of a book when I was in med school. And these <laughs> kids are like changing the world. I don't know how they and do it. they're anyway. also doing other projects too. I'm I, know. Like, <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. It was an aside. Go amazing. ahead. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, the board of elections offices are also very busy right now. So it's quite a feat for them to have contacted and confirmed the process because part of the challenge is the process is not very clear online on the state election websites which is why you know we wanted to make our own website um but we do we did need to confirm the process in each state and in each state it's very different and i think that is also the challenge in this organization so it's all it's volunteer based Mm -hmm. um mostly because i don't have the bandwidth to figure out grants <laughs> and funding. Oh my goodness. That would be, you would need like a full-time person to do yeah, that for you. Exactly. you know? yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So it's volunteer-based and it's, you know, we try and create a network of people in each state who can get accustomed to the state's process. And mm-hmm. basically our playbook for them is, you know, you're interested, great. What area do you want to represent? And that's mm-hmm. basically anywhere from 
a hospital, just as a single hospital, or you could even do something like a single floor of a hospital. Like Mm -hmm. if you work on the OB floor, you could just do OB. Or you could do, I want to represent my state and I want you to direct people in my state to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's basically the first step. The nice thing is that, you know, our organization has contacted the Board of Elections. So we have contact names. We have confirmed the process. So that part's okay. But within the hospital, really, even though I think that voting and encouraging voting is a very nonpartisan thing. And so even though patient voting is a nonpartisan organization. And I think encouraging people to vote is generally a nonpartisan thing. It's viewed mm-hmm. by a lot of hospital administrators as too political for them to promote. But I think that, you know, we try and encourage people to sell it as like, this is improving the patient experience. This is mm-hmm. improving the civic engagement of our communities and our patients. Yeah, And so that's typically... I think we try and sell patient voting. I say sell. I don't mean to say sell. <laughs> you mean uh, advocate, for your, advocate for your point of view. Yeah. yeah. We try and advocate yeah. for people bringing patient voting to their hospitals as you know, nonpartisan, a patient experience thing and a improving civic engagement. Right. Um, and I think the difficult thing is that most people that are interested in patient voting are typically, you know, I'm an employee of this hospital. It's not administrators that are reaching out. Right. So it's very hard to get approval kind of from not the top down. So you really do need administrator's approval for this. Right. Which is not what I did in 2018. I basically asked for forgiveness and it went over fine. But (laughs) Right. Right. Well, it probably also was beneficial in terms of like proof of concept, right? You could say, I already did this and it worked and people liked it, you know? And I think that's interesting that you couch it in terms of patient experience Mm -hmm. because as patient feedback, patient experience is almost something that you probably spend a lot of time thinking about. So it's interesting that you couch it like that and and use it in those terms. I hadn't thought about it like that. Yeah. Very few few people have a positive experience in the emergency department, unfortunately. Just – yeah. Even as someone who knows all the ins and outs of how hard it is to run an emergency department, when I have to interact with it, it's really hard for me even to be patient. And I, so I just know, you know, it's like you're dealing with somebody who's 10 out of 10 keyed up and they're stressed out and then you're asking them to hurry up and wait. It's just, I totally feel for you. So can you explain what an emergency absentee ballot is? Yeah. So an emergency absentee ballot is what patient voting uses Mm -hmm. to encourage hospitalized patients to vote. I think most people are familiar with a regular absentee ballot. It's basically what our military uses to vote overseas or, you know, what college students use to vote if they're not going to return home for election day, say they're, Mm -hmm. you know, away at college at a different state. But typically most states have a deadline for the regular absentee ballot. I see. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. people use the regular absentee ballot because they know ahead of time that they're going to be gone. But, you know, what happens when you're unexpectedly hospitalized in the several days before the election? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, one, you didn't expect this to happen. Two, it's sometimes after that regular absentee ballot deadline. Mm -hmm. Most states have an emergency absentee ballot for cases like this. Mm -hmm. Say you break your leg and you're at home and you can't get to the polls, you could also use this. But, Mm -hmm. you know, most states uh, have a little line in there that says if you're hospitalized or if you're in a nursing facility and can't leave, Mm -hmm. this is for you. 
And I think it's been underutilized in the past based on the numbers that we've gotten from boards of elections. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was basically And is this information you've gotten from your volunteers calling around and getting that data or is that publicly accessible? Okay. And thinking about access to the ballot, and I'm trying to think about who is more likely to be hospitalized. Do you, is there any kind of data on who tends to miss out on voting because they're hospitalized? Is there, is it like city versus rural? Is there any kind of gender or racial breakdown on those numbers? So there's actually, from what we can tell, from what our research team can tell, there's no uh-huh. data on okay. hospitalized patients voting. Okay. Um, there's a little bit of data on like long-term psych hospitals and patients voting and capacity, which is very interesting, but that, mm. but not in a regular hospital um, for the general population. Mm. Um, I think we, you know, especially as an emergency medicine provider, you know, I, there are patients that I see more often than others. And I worry that those patients are going to be, you know, they're more likely to be hospitalized on election day and therefore right. less likely to be able to, you know, have their voice heard in the election. Right, yeah. And I worry I about want, those yeah. that yeah. are frequently encountering the emergency department. Yeah, it seems like maybe you could extrapolate from who is more likely to be hospitalized. That would be interesting. I hadn't quite thought about it in those terms, but I'm sure you'll have those numbers eventually because maybe right. you'll see who people are um, reaching out to f- from your organization. You said you have volunteers and these are mostly medical students. Do you solicit volunteers? Do people reach out to you? How do they become involved if they want to do that? Yeah, um, I think our core group is, you know, the kind of board is mostly medical students, but we have volunteers Mm -hmm. who are, you know, patient care techs, EMTs, Mm -hmm. you know, non-medical hospital volunteers, Mm -hmm. all sorts of people. I think it's mostly been word of mouth at this point. We do, you know, occasionally advertise on social media to have more people join. And by advertise, you mean you tweet. So, you're not paying for no, advertising. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, yeah. I just tweet, like, if you're interested in joining Join us. Join me up. Yeah. yeah here's, the, here's the form and we'll get back to you. Well, and you got written up in the New York Times. So how did that feel? It did felt people... good. And I, yeah. you know, really appreciate people highlighting, you know, these efforts and the efforts by Dr. Martin for yeah. patient registration. Yeah. Um, so it was great. And obviously there was an uptick of people wanting to join after that. Oh, I'm sure. So yeah. Great. Although they said you were a medical student, but you're not. I think but you do work it. with medical students. Yeah. So. I think yeah. it got corrected. Oh, you did? Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. You were a correction in the New York Times. Wow. <laughs> you made it. You made it. So your website is also beautiful. Did you design it? Oh, you should have seen the first version. It was horrendous. Okay. Yeah. See, I... people need to hear this because everyone who has an idea is like, oh my gosh. And they look at your website and they're like, oh, I can't do that. So tell us about what it looked like at first. I so I, you know, I also, you know, I'm not political. Here I am in mm-hmm. a somewhat political organization. I'm not at all, you know, web savvy, <laughs> coding savvy, but I used, you know, I tried out Wix and Squarespace and all of those. Mm-hmm. And basically I thought Wix was one that, was very intuitive for me. How do you spell um, that? W-I-X X. Okay. Okay. Um, it is one of the few things we do pay for as a domain name. Sure. So that's not, you know, wix.com slash patient voting. Right, right, um, right. But yeah, the first version of the website was not navigable. <laughs> it was not, <laughs> you know, it looked awful. And so I, yeah. I think I've had, you know, two years since the 2018 election to kind of picture what I wanted it to look like. 
Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's good. That's good to know. See, everyone has to start somewhere. Yeah. And you probably learned things along the way that made you better. Definitely. What you're doing now. So you are active on Twitter. Can you talk to me about how you see social media? I think this is a really interesting topic and I see different medical people using it. Some people are telling jokes on social media with their medical account, not about their patients, but just jokes. They're just joking. They don't seem to be using it for professional activities. Some people use theirs for activism, some people for education. Maybe you see it as all of those things, but with the recent conversations about professionalism on social media and that article that everyone was angry about. And I think it was called like bikini gate or something or bikinis. Yeah. 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 So I I mean, I, I read it and I was like, I can't, I can't believe this This is crazy. You know, it's like my friends and I all laughed about this article. I'll try to find it to put it in the show notes. It was about um, these people recreating like daggers out of feces or something. I mean, it's like you you read these papers and you're like, this is great. I know exactly. You're like, how did this get published? That's crazy. Oh, it's amazing. Um, so how are you? How do you see social media? Do you think your thoughts on it have changed since you started doing this organization? And how do you see the recent events, if at all? So I have had a journey with social media. And actually, it's mm-hmm. like what most of my talks and published articles are on is yeah. using yeah. social media. I think I was kind of an early adopter in terms of residence. Um Mm-hmm. So I've, I've actually been on since 2015. And at first it was mm-hmm. more cathartic and for me in a rural area to explore what like academic medicine and what emergency mm-hmm. medicine were like and what, mm-hmm. you know. Was it educational for you? It was super educational. Like it was connecting you to sort of like bigger cities or rarer cases and stuff like that? Yeah, exactly. Okay. And, okay. you know, we don't have a residency and we I knew no women emergency medicine at you know, attending. So I think Mm -hmm. that was huge. But -hmm. what it's kind of developed into is a way, you know, like you alluded to your, your Twitter account is somewhat loosely associated with your professional identity. And I think um, that's kind of what my Twitter account has become as well. Uh, You know, I, you know, as professionals, we all deal with a little bit of imposter syndrome. But I think something that the social media piece has really taught me is that you you should advocate for yourself and you should talk about what you're doing loudly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when I first started uh-huh. patient voting in like 2018, I was trying to get people to talk about this. And I, I was just taking tweets and then just, you know, adding like at local news, at local news, at CNN, at this, just uh-huh. at the governor of Rhode Island. <laughs> yeah. Just, oh, yeah. Did she... Did she pay attention uh, the to you? State, the state government, like, Twitter liked it, I think. Oh, awesome. <laughs> but I think nice. that's something that I tell a lot of people I work with is, like, you're doing really cool stuff. Like, if you just publish an article, you should be tweeting about it. You have to. Yes. And I think that there is a sense among at least some of my colleagues that that is, like, a form of. Humble brag. <gasps> right. That it's almost, like, gauche, right, to talk about what you're doing. Yeah. and. You know, I think it's a fine line you have to walk, right? right. But I think it, I think you're right. If you've put in the work, what's the harm in letting people know? And I, I think, know. you know, it's pretty shocking to me at an organization as big as Brown mm-hmm. that I know so little about what my attendings are doing research-wise and mm-hmm. what my, my, you know, co-residents are doing. They're doing mm-hmm. some really cool stuff that I wish they would have told me about. Oh. But I do think that Twitter and social media is a way that you can – kind of disseminate 
your research or disseminate your project in a really educational way for colleagues, you know, patients even find you. And yeah, patients. And then for pathology, especially, I mean, everybody knows the ER, everybody knows I know, um, emergency medicine because a lot of people have to interact with it, right? But most people don't know about pathology because they mm-hmm. don't go sit down across the microscope and look at their own slides. So as a pathologist, I use it also to reach out to medical trainees and those interested in medicine to say like, here's what I do. This is what I do every day. This is how I impact patient care. Um, And I I do find it very interesting that you said it was a way for you to connect with maybe people who look like you who were doing emergency medicine because no one was, you weren't seeing yourself in that role in the people you were seeing do it in South Dakota, for example. So how do you see the generational breakdown since you're younger than I am and you're still in training? Do Are most of your fellow residents on social media? And then do your attendings seem to do it as much? Or is it mostly the people still in training? So I think it might be a little skewed because I heard of Brown and became interested in Brown because of their social media presence. Okay. So there actually are a large number of our attendings who actively use Twitter. Right. Um, and some of them have become pretty yeah. known during COVID. Yeah, exactly. For sure. yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I think they all contacted because... each other through social media. I that's mean, great. I think that's, you know, how that starts. But yeah, um, a lot of my co-residents are as well. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think this year, especially with, you know, COVID and interview, in-person interviews being canceled, yes. kind of a big thing for us is making sure that, uh, you know, medical students can contact us as residents to hear, you know, what the program is like. So a lot, you know, we're seeing many more of the residents who didn't have Twitter now joining it. Shifting. That's it. That's a good point that everything is shifting now. The interview season yeah. is going to be a ride this it's fall. Be interesting. It's just going to be like my phone going off every day to remind me to log on to Zoom. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And give an interview, you know, so I don't forget. It's like 1125. You have five minutes. I Um, just remember how important that gut feeling was for me of interviewing and just knowing that I wanted to be in a place. And I just hope that we can recreate that for people. I know. It's it's so important to be able to see people in person. And I don't know. You said you're going back to South Dakota. If you were able to interview for this job or wherever you're going back there for in person, but you probably already had some kind of idea about what was going on there. But it would be really hard for me to take a job if I never got to go there in person before yeah. I started my first day. You know, that would be, and that's basically what you're doing as a resident. Although right. one could argue that it's even more important because it's such a formative experience. So yeah, we have a lot to learn. To segue into COVID-19, which we sort of touched on a second ago, you were active on Twitter in the spring when we had our peak. That was me knocking on wood in Rhode Island. <laughs> yes. Deep breaths. Can you talk about what that time in the spring was like for you? Do you remember where you were or how you realized that this was going to be not just subtle, it was going to be like a wave hitting here? What time? Do you remember about what time it was? Like when, what month oh, or yeah. something? Um, yeah. I mean, I remember very quickly between, like, I think I put it down until like March 15th. Mm-hmm. You know, okay. I oh, was in my right. third year of residency, mm-hmm. which is a really fun year because you are sometimes managing the critical care bay in the emergency department, which is typically the sickest patients in one of our hospitals. Okay. You know, there was and that's like the big time. Is that like a lot of like little intricate decisions and sort yeah. of? Yeah. Fast okay. paced, oh. not a lot of okay. information. Got it. You're kind of, okay. you and your attending and the other staff, nursing and respiratory therapy are making decisions. Got it. And, you okay. know, 
seconds. And here we are with a brand new disease mm. that nobody mm-hmm. knows about. Mm-hmm. It was really stressful. And I think there was a moment in like late March or early April where mm-hmm. I was standing in front of a patient who was very sick, but otherwise at baseline, a very well person. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of like expletives. I was like, we're screwed. Mm-hmm. Like, this is crazy. Because the person had gone from being yeah. relatively healthy to right. super sick and that made it hit home Which for is you. very different than I think, you know, sometimes we see a lot of sick patients right. who have a lot of comorbidities at baseline right. and it's not, I, w- I don't want to say it's not a surprise, but. It's know, not as big of a delta, right? Yeah, from exactly. Some, yeah, yeah. Uh, but to see someone maybe even like around your age go from being relatively right. healthy to needing to be intubated, I can't imagine that that didn't hit you. Yeah, different, totally new experience that we had not yeah. encountered previously. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and I think there was a, so, a bit of frustration initially of okay. not feeling well protected, but I think Rhode Island and I think our hospitals in particular did such a good job of organizing up front and being very aggressive up front about planning and this is what we're going to do when yeah. if this happens. And yeah, yeah. that quickly, you know, I felt well taken care of. Yeah, I think Rhode Island has been, and I mean, perhaps not New York City, although there are different dynamics going on there in terms of demographics and like population, people flow. But I think in this part of the country, it is refreshing that people have taken it so seriously, right? That most, for most, knock on wood, for the most part, at least, it seemed like, like our governor took it seriously and people tend, like you said, the supply chains were sort of really looked after. So I'm glad to hear. I continue to be very proud to say that. You know, we're in Rhode Island. So, and are you still not to put you on the spot, but are you still in touch with people in South Dakota? How are they doing there? You don't hear much about it. I mean, like you said, it's not a very populous state, although it is very large. Yeah. So, um, I, I mean, my fiance lives there right now. Okay. So, yes, in very close touch. Um, it okay. is very different. Okay. Um, in terms of, I think South Dakota may still have one of the largest single sites of COVID oh, at a, one of the meatpacking plant? plants. Yes. Oh, goodness. Um, and I think that after that, they have improved significantly. However, they're still not very shut down compared to Rhode Island. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, whereas everywhere, everyone wears a mask here. Yes. Pretty much everything's open and without masks. Yeah, the West is a whole different ball of wax. Right. I would, I'm so you sure know I don't world. have to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like a different world out right. there. So I'm sorry to hear that. Um, I hope everyone, you, your family is all doing well. Um, and that I for, I'd forgotten about the meatpacking plant. It's kind of changes the dynamic of having a spread out population, which you would think would make COVID a little bit easier to control. Yeah. Um, a whole different ball game once you start packing people into a place and <laughs> having them work closely together. Yep. So what does it feel like? I don't know if you, I assume you do all the different things, but I assume you mostly work in an emergency department during your residency. That seems to make sense. Does it feel different to be in the ER now than it did say back in April when you were using expletives or do you think you've just gotten used to it or has it actually gotten better? And then I know it's never good to prognosticate, but do you think that it will come back in the fall? Do you have any feeling like, what are people saying? Is everyone saying like, Oh, this is the calm before the second wave or how are you all feeling on the, you know, quote unquote front lines, which is sort of a word that I pretty tired of hearing at this point. (laughs) Yeah. I'm still in the emergency department. That's primarily Mm -hmm. where I spend all my time now, but I think that especially in the past month, Mm -hmm. we've been able to take a little breath 
uh, Good. it's been a little bit of a relief, which has been really nice. I think we are all cautiously, I wouldn't say optimistic, but um, I think we're cautiously all worried. Cautiously not using expletives? <laughs> cautiously not using expletives anymore. <laughs> and also I think it helps that we just know a little yeah. bit more about yes. how to protect ourselves, right. how to protect our patients. And what things are working for our patients. And the treatments have changed. It seems like, although we haven't gotten specific therapies, it seems like the pulmonologist and you all are just getting better at kind of knowing the little tweaks that you can do to kind of help people. Not that it's not just as serious as it was, but man. It's funny. It's funny. You you know, I'm seeing a lot fewer patients now with COVID in the emergency department as before. There were shifts where I only saw COVID. (laughs) and just every once in a while, you're like, I, this person has COVID. It's just, there's no vitals back. There's no <laughs> lab oh, results really? back. So you you can, just get a gut feeling. Um, and sometimes yeah. you're wrong, but. Um, but, well, and then, you know, sometimes like, like I don't know, the sensitivity and specificity of the testing, you wonder, because they say that dogs can sniff it out now. I'm not sure what? I believe that, but did you see that? No, I didn't. The dogs are like 94% sensitive and I'm like. I would compared? love to have more dogs in the emergency department, actually. So anything that we can do to get that um, research going. I'll is, look into that for you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> can you imagine? It's the pathologist with a dog in the ER. I can't imagine. Yeah. Um so I hope, I mean, knock on wood, I, I only hope the best for you all. And I, I hope that people in Rhode Island continue to take it seriously. It's hard to know what's going to happen because our state is so beautiful. To switch topics a bit, on the board of an organization called Prescribe It Forward, um, which I was reading about, and I, I'd like it if you could talk about it a little bit and how you became involved with it. Sure. Through social media. It's a good, <laughs> but Prescribe It Forward is a great organization. I really can't take any credit at all about yeah. the running or the the you know start of it um but I think it was really cool it was started by medical students who were you know seeing an influx of posts about you know med- pre-meds paying for mentorship to help oh guide word. them through you know getting into medical school and I think we all you know we've been through it we know how expensive it can be even without paying for mentorship because you're paying for your MCAT paying? I think In particular, pre-medical students are very vulnerable in terms of, you know, this is their dream. This is what they want to do. They'll do anything to get in if if they think it'll make a difference. And so a lot of these medical students who are seeing this thought, you know, I never paid for mentorship. I don't think anybody should pay for mentorship. How can we help? And especially how can we help underrepresented minorities? you know, people who are first generation, people who want to find a mentor who looks like them and just make sure that people see people in medicine that look like them, I think is really, really important. And hearing, Hugely important. you know, yeah. what worked for them and at the end, so, just making sure it's free. So, yeah. And so what do you, what's your experience like with, with mentoring folks with that organization? Yeah. So it's actually great. They try and keep it to mostly just medical students, mentoring pre-medical students. So as a resident, I am slightly outside of that process, but um, serving on the board, I think we, it's a very diverse group of people from doctors to just people in the professional world and business kind of helping with the vision of prescribe it forward and just making sure that you know on kind of the business side of things things are run as an organization 
um, as they would be like a company, just making sure that advertising, you know. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, so it's been yeah. it's been really fun, but I can't take any credit for. Right, but I mean, it seems like you found them, they found you, you're doing this good work and helping them. I just have to stop looking at the news sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a secret to look There are good me. things happening. I think exactly. it's sometimes yes. hard to see them with 2020, but. Exactly. Which is ironic. I never thought about that 2020 vision is uh, it's turning out to be something <laughs> that none of us want to see. So, <laughs> yeah. and now to attempt to end the podcast or wrap it up on a lighter note. Um, maybe we can talk about Rhode Island a little bit. Uh, let's see. I moved here in 2018, so I think probably somewhere around the time you moved. Yeah, here, 2017 was when I moved. Yeah. So very close. Yeah, yeah. So I can relate to being a relatively recent transplant to the Ocean State. What's your favorite thing about living in Rhode Island, and what has surprised you the most about living in Rhode Island? Um, I have always liked seafood, but obviously being in South Dakota makes that very challenging. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, in California, maybe because you were in California during your formative years, oh, you sort of to taste bud yeah. for it, right? Yeah. Um, I love the food scene and I love the food scene in Providence. I feel like mm-hmm. even since I've been here, there's been so many new cool restaurants that have opened up. I think owing mm-hmm. in part to the culinary school. Agree. Yeah. Yes. So I think they, they retain have, a lot of great I chefs. Agree. Yes, I agree. What That's are your favorite places to eat here? Oh man, you know, it's been a while since I've been out. There's a really good yeah. um Korean place that because uh, see I have a niece who went to Brown and so she would I would just text her and say where should I go today and she would send me the name because she's so hip and I have little kids so I barely ever go out yeah but there was a place we used to go eat Korean food and then I like that new vegan restaurant down by the water by the river Do you know oh yeah uh, Plant City Yes. Yes. Um, although, but it, there's so much good stuff just down in that area by Brown. We Sometimes yeah. we just park and walk and look around. What about you? What's your favorite place to eat? Uh, we Love North, which I Ooh. think is a great – they were somewhere else, but now they moved downtown. Oh. Um, we've only gotten takeout from them one time, <laughs> contactless takeout during COVID, yeah. and we miss them dearly. I know. Um, I miss eating in restaurants. I never thought I would say that because I yeah. don't like really, really big crowds and like loud noises, but I just miss like, you know, on just going down to something simple. It's oh, devastating. Well, it is devastating. <laughs> so right. what about, what, is, what about living in Rhode Island has surprised you the most? Um, I think probably kind of what you said earlier is like so many Rhode Islanders stay in Rhode Island. I always thought of it as such a touristy you know, yeah. uh, place yeah. where people come and go, but the Rhode Island lifers, I love hearing about them. I always ask my patients if they're from here and kind of what yeah. they did for jobs. Yeah, it is. It's funny. It's because it's such a great place to live. Yeah. We're very excited to come back kind of, even though we're moving home, we're excited to come back and, yeah. and visit. Oh yeah. And it'll be a nice place to uh, come to the beach. Cause I think the beaches in Rhode Island are sort of not as popular as a place like, you know, Florida or, right. South Carolina or something, so they tend not to be quite as mobbed. There's lots um, of hidden yeah. gems in Rhode Island for beaches, so totally and great places to like ride bikes, little country roads, you know, mm-hmm. like right by the beach. I I tell people it's like if the wind is blowing the right way, you can be <laughs> kind of far away from it and still smell the water. It's great, yeah. you know. So yeah, so well, I really appreciate you coming to talk to me. I think what you're doing is amazing and I can't wait to follow you in your career and see what you get up to. So 
everyone listening, I will put all the information about how you can look up her organization and volunteer if you'd like, and all the information about Prescribe It Forward and also the write-up that Dr. Wong got in the New York Times. So thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for bringing more attention to this. I think it's so important. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll talk soon. Thank you. Bye.